Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey. I'm Dave Cohen. And this week we have an interview with a journalist and novelist called Cole Morton. It's an exclusive James James Carey solo. Uh, yes, indeed. Interview. So I I was at a festival, hence the background noise, um, <laughs> with with this fellow who I've known for several years, mainly through that festival actually, which I've been involved at. This is sort of highlights of that that interview with some background noise bits where it's bad um, taken off. But the thing that I was really keen to talk to Nicole about. Um, is not just because it was easy to talk to him, but also he's got a novel out and Dave's writing a novel at the moment. I'm thinking about writing one. He's also made his living as a writer his whole career, and he's now in his 50s. And I'm increasingly realising that that's quite a rare thing and that there's something to learn from someone who was able to just keep going Mm. and that his writing career started quite surprisingly, potentially at one of a... (laughs) At a funeral yeah. of... Say No More. It's a great story. Yes. It's, a, it's the opening and it's yes. a brilliant story. And it, yes, it's about the craze. Yeah. Uh, so you will yeah. want to uh, listen to that and then yeah. also listen to how he got some writing advice from, of all people, Geoffrey Archer. It's interesting as well that he's a, a journalist. I started as a journalist and it, and it does definitely help you because uh, you just get deadlines all the time and you do you have to have 200 words written in the next two hours and you just kind of don't have time to think and that's what what I found quite interesting in a lot of that discussion was where you talk about the the kind of the process of writing and it's very easy when you're creating new stuff to to get bogged down and be overthinking uh the characters and stories or whatever but it's the, the there's no substitute for just right I need that on my desk in 20 minutes yeah and um, that, that's uh, very interesting insights yeah. in there. And the discipline of just writing. You've got, you've got, you've got to write. Yeah. You've got to yeah. do it now. Right. Have a listen. So, so you got your first writing job at 15? Yeah, Walthamstow Guardian. So I was uh, in a pretty terrible school in the East End of London. Um, and w- I was trying to get someone with my exams, but it wasn't really working. The local newspaper editor came in and said, do you know what, you could be like Michael Parkinson to us, right? And at the time, Michael Parkinson was interviewing Muhammad Ali. Yeah, he was a huge star. So I was really really all for that. So I said to him afterwards, can I come on work experience? I went. My first day on work experience, the news editor said, right, we're going up to Chinkford Mount because it's the funeral of Violet Cray. The mother of the Cray twins, the most notorious men in, in Britain at the time. There were 5,000 people at the church, and the news editor, was a proper rogue, said to me, look, son, you don't look like a reporter. Put this jacket on. Try and get into the church. And so I was more scared of him than I didn't know who the craze were. I had no that, idea at all. That's probably just as well. Uh, yeah. yeah, so 14 years old, so I, th- I thought, well, I'm not going to, obviously. I'm not stupid. Mm. I'll just merge into the crowd. I merged into the crowd. I had a black jacket on. They all thought I was part of the funeral um, <laughs> congregation. And so I find myself at the, uh, approaching St Mary's Old Church in, in Chingford underneath the awning. Okay. Um, about to go in as part of the congregation. And Ronnie and Reggie are standing 10 feet away handcuffed to the two biggest minders the prison service could find yeah and i get right to the and i'm not going to use the language yeah. i get right to the door and this massive guy man mountain yeah with uh shades on just took one step folded his arms took one step in front of me blocked the sunlight and said you must be effing joking wow. and i ran and ran and ran <laughs> 
through the crowd and back to the news editor who was killing himself laughing because he hadn't really meant it. He just he was chancing his arm. And he said, if you are prepared to do that, then you can have a job as soon as you like. Right? Wow. And the fact is, I hadn't been prepared to do it at all. And that's the central dilemma of my life as a journalist ever since. I wasn't up for gate crushing the career's funeral. Yeah. It happened by accident. Wow. Anyways, and, you, and you've been... And is it fair to say that if you make your living as a writer, it feels like you spend most of your life feeling like you're getting away with it? Yeah. I mean, a couple of things happen. Every time I write a piece, and I must have written several million words since the age of 15, every time I stare at it and think, I don't know what I'm doing. How, yeah. do, you do, how do you do this again? Yeah. I, I, what, what is this? Don't know. Don't know what it is. That's interesting. I mean, I think David Lodge, or one of those guys, says, or it might be Michael Frayne, says, he starts every novel thinking, how do I write this novel? I, knew how, I, I, worked, I, I figured out how to write the last one, but yeah. I now don't know how to write this one. Yeah. Um, and it feels, but even, even though, so you've done a lot of, the thing, when I think of Cole Morton, I think of interviews. Yeah. <laughs> I think <laughs> Interview. of interviews yeah. in, in broadsheet newspapers mm -hmm. and tabloid newspapers mm -hmm. uh, and Sunday supplements and that kind of thing. And you must know how to do those by now, surely. No. I, I go into the situation I was, I, last year. Last week I did Bear Grylls. Okay. I go all the way to Abbasock in North Wales because he lives in an island just off of the coast there. Of course he does. Yeah. yeah. And, he, and he'd arrived by rubber dinghy. He was still <laughs> wet from the journey, right? In this cafe, and we're supposed to meet in the corner. Yeah. And of course it's Abbasock Regatta Week, so it's stuffed with people. So how am I going to find a seat? How am I going to make this happen? You'll appreciate that mm. from doing podcasts. Sit in the corner. Uh, Bear Grylls turns up, I've got an hour with him and, and I honestly, there are moments at the beginning of a thing like that when I just think I have no idea what I'm doing What am I doing here? Yeah, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how to do this Right. And, and, the, and the secret of it is, in terms of the interview yeah. you've got to uh, on one level carry your, uh, the convictions and, the, and the, maybe the three or four things that you absolutely must ask about yeah. and, and must not be afraid to ask yeah. either and beyond that, you've also got to just have a conversation. So I never use notes, for example. I okay. won't ever refer to a note. It has to be, all be in my head. Right. Before I go in there, I have to know everything there is to know about that person. Right. So that I can pick up on any verbal cues. So how long uh, are you prepping for those interviews? Probably three or four days. Really? Yeah. And you're reading their stuff, you're reading biogs. This is more than merely Wikipedia, right? Yeah, right, all the way back. I mean, yeah. it's not always like that. Yeah. You know, it's, life is real and sometimes yeah. they get half an hour's notice. Yeah. And then it is Wikipedia. Yeah. But uh, I'll give you an example. I, I did uh, Paul Michael Glazer, you mm -hmm. know, Starsky. Was he Starsky or Hutch? He was Starsky. Yeah. Who, was, who had come to the Orchard Theatre Dartmouth. Uh, uh, no, wherever that place is anyway, on the yeah. Thames. Um, and he had come to do Captain Hook and so he was doing pantomime for the first time Wow! and the agent said you can talk to him but you must only talk about pantomime right. you've got 25 minutes it, there are a number of things that he won't talk about uh, one of them is that his wife Elizabeth uh, from blood transfusion contracted AIDS and in, very, in the early days of AIDS mm. and died great that's now all that's now all you want to talk about yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, so so I, I'm not allowed to talk about that. You've yeah. got to talk about pantomime, and um, and it's fascinating that because he created a foundation in her name. So I, I get there. Uh, I'm, oh yes, so I'm doing the I'm doing the research doing the, and and I'm deep deep into it for several days, and then I come across a talk that he did to the Harvard Business School ten years earlier, in which he said, 
all drama is about a diversion from our fear of death. Right? Yeah. Okay. And and then he went from there to talk about Elizabeth at great length. Yeah. So we're we're doing the thing. I'm asking him questions about pantomime. He doesn't know the first thing about pantomime. He's no. American. He yeah. And how how could you? No. It's completely. Yeah. 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 Explain pantomime to a foreigner is a funny idea. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, I know I know pantomime dames have been doing it for thirty years. who barely understand it. Yeah. So, Anyway, so it's not working. The, the PR is, is lurking and, and he gets frustrated and it's not, he, he feels that there's not a conversation going on. So he says, anyway, you know, all, all drama is a diversion from the th- fear of death. And I said, you said that to the Harvard Business School 10 years ago and then you talked about Elizabeth, didn't you? Right. And then his, his eyes lit up and he looked over to the PR and he said, come back in an hour. And he told me all about it. Okay. So wow. it's just because of that piece of research. Okay, do your research. Mm. So how do you, let's go back. So you were 15, you were, I mean, was the plan, so you had no great plan to write. Um, I mean, mm. presumably at one point, I get the sense that you wanted to basically be a rock star of some sort. Yeah, that's why I'm called Cole. Okay. So I'm actually Colin. Right. Let's out it. There okay. it is. There it is. But you can't be a rock star if you're called Colin and you're not allowed. It's against the law, just like being at festivals in August is yeah. the law. That's an immutable law, isn't it, Colin? Yeah. There, well, is it's there... Colin Bluntstone. Okay, and he's not famous. Not really. Because I've never heard of him. No, okay. I think that's it. Right. Well, if the most famous Colin is Colin Bluntstone. I think he did a, I think he had a hit with a cover of What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. <laughs> okay. I may have looked into that. Wow, okay. <laughs> anyway, you can't be a rock yeah. star if you're called Colin. So I changed my name when I was yeah. uh, 16, 17. So uh, was it always journalism then that you kind of ended up doing? Or was it, did you always, because we'll get to the fact that you've just written a novel. Yeah. Which, let's be honest, is a terrible idea. Um, Thank you. <laughs> great novel, I'm sure, but I'm not yet read. <laughs> but Yeah, um, you're really selling it and making me glad I'm doing this podcast. No, it's mo- it, but it's more that... I've often thought about making, writing a novel and just think, the amount of work for the amount of money. Oh, yeah. It just makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah. It's like a lottery ticket for Euro millions, right? Yeah. So it's not even like a British lottery ticket. Right. It's like a, a lottery that everyone's doing, so you've got no chance of winning. Yeah. But it takes you, in this case, 14 years to write the, the ticket. Right. That's, that's basically what's okay. happening. Okay, <laughs> with no chance of winning. No. So, so I feel, I feel more justified in my original question or my original right. statement that writing a novel makes no sense. No, you're right, it doesn't. But it doesn't. before you got to that, you know, you've done so many different kinds of writing as well. Um, you know, do you feel like, what drives you, what sort of drives you to write? What sort of, yeah. what sort of writer are you? Do you write because you have stuff to say? Do you write because mm-hmm. you need to make money? Do you have a mixture yeah. of the above? So I'll answer that in two parts. The first bit is kind of a, a little bit of autobiography. So uh, I loved the words. I was always turned on by the words. Mm. And then the music that I responded to, it was often the words that were the, the right. thing. So Dylan, for example, yeah. or um, Leonard Cohen, all those kind It of would people. be the words in, yeah. in their case, because yeah. it's certainly in the music. It's certainly in the music, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and, and Bowie, weirdly, although, although what he was doing at the time was the kind of cut up Berlin stuff, it still had a kind of resonance, dark yeah. resonance. So the words, um, and then, uh, I, but I wasn't getting on well at school. I said I went to a crap school, um, but there was a teacher, Snezhana Velichkovich. Wow. She, yeah, she came from the former Yugoslavia to teach us English. <laughs> 
<laughs> it was that kind of school. Um, right, okay. uh, which is not to say that people can't do that. That's a terrible thing to say. Oh, it's a joke. Um, it yeah, it was a You're joke. Fine. It was a joke. Yeah. So and and she was gorgeous. Yeah. And she was probably I was probably 13 right. and she was probably 21, 22. Okay. So all the boys fell in love with uh, Miss Velichkovich. The chess club was probably swollen to, to bursting because oh, of all the boys. Right. And she, and what she'd brought with her was a love of books and a love of music and the idea that there was another kind of life beyond, frankly, you know, uh, we our O levels were in stealing car radios, basically. Right. We, you know, it was a pretty, pretty dire situation we were in. That there was another life, and I wrote a poem. She asked me to write a poem about a cat. I remember it still, and and I kind of put myself in the in in some sort of, in the place of the cat or something. Wrote this poem, got A star. For Miss Velichkovich, and over the course of the next year, she was the one who said, "Read this book, listen to this song. You know, there is another life." Right. And, and she didn't just say it; she like invited us to her wedding. Right. Uh, over in Hampstead, and I went to Hampstead. And I was oh, like, the heartbroken the boys. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Really. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, we weren't foolish enough to think we had a chance, but well, we were certainly uh, yeah. adoration was certainly yeah. going on. Anyway, so uh, I can I can tell you that uh, that experience and her um, for teachers who, who may be listening to this you know you don't know you'd never know yeah um, but for me none of this would have happened but for snazzy none wow. of it wow. and and um, I tried to find her when I published my first book and I couldn't and then the second and I couldn't and then the third book I did find her so I have been able to say to her look this is all this is all down to you oh so there you go that's nice hmm so that's so, so, so it was more the it's almost the it's almost the beauty of the words and words themselves and, and, the, and what they evoke. Initially. Yeah. And then uh, came conversion. Right. I grew up in an atheist household. Okay. My extended family was Salvation Army. Right. But my dad had rebelled against that. Uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll were fine by him. Right. God was not. So, of course, as a teenager, wow. I went for God. Right. right. That's what we do. Oh, man. Uh, and I, got, I had a pretty traumatic conversion and went off to work with youth with a mission as a faith worker for several years in refugee camps around the world. Uh, with that kind of teenage conviction that if it was real, I had to push it as far as I possibly could yeah. to see if it was still real. Um, and so, I suppose matched with the love of the words suddenly became a real burning desire to be useful you know to actually make connections and the answer to the second part of the question what kind of a writer am I I am obsessed with making connections between human beings that's what I'm here for right, right? so I had an I had an experience when I was 30 um, right okay so just to fill in the autobiogra autobiography if that's okay um, I did the refugee work I came back I did a degree after the degree I uh, started freelancing I did work for the Church Times and for national newspapers um, and then gradually I joined the Independent on Sunday and I was there for 15 years right so I was with the Liberal papers for a long time mm -hmm. and then the Guardian after that so um, and I wrote a couple of books so during that time I have read one of those have you? Really, yeah, the, uh, how the English. Um, uh, what's the title, James? How the English <laughs> lost their something, get, gained their soul. <laughs> it's very good. How the English lost their faith. Is God their soul? still an Englishman? Is was God the still actual an title. Yeah. Uh, how we lost yeah. our faith, yeah. but found new soul. Okay. Right. So I that, really enjoyed it. Good. 
really Good. enjoyed you it. You would have disagreed with quite a bit of it. Uh, yes, uh, but that's the, that's that's conversation for another podcast. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So where was I? So um, I was jumping. So you were so do you were doing maybe broadsheets, connecting people. Yeah. So I still wasn't really sure. I knew I didn't really want to be a journalist. Actually, I knew it was a bigger story than that than right. just journalism. And then um, uh, I was age about 29, I think. I started getting interested in storytelling. And a friend, um, Justin Butcher, who I think you probably know. Yes. A dramatist. Actor, writer, director. He, he asked me to take part in a service at St Luke's Holloway. It was a Monday Thursday service. And the idea of the service was that at the end we'd have a meal, tell stories of faith. At the end of the service, we'd all go into the, the yard at the front of the church with a really busy main road. And, and somebody, namely me, would tell the story of the betrayal. And then at the end of it, wordlessly, we would snuff out all the candles and just walk away. Right. Like happened in the garden. And, and so I took this really, really seriously and practiced and got into the yeah. story for a week. Did it and found that in that moment of making it happen, there was a, such a profound connection among everybody in that group. Right. Uh, I, I literally walked home from the tube that night thinking, I found it, that's the thing, that's, that's what I do. That I'm, was like your first, it was like a drug. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, it wasn't so much that I, I was addicted to the feeling of it, yeah. it was more that it made sense of who I was. Okay. I'm, so I'm here to tell stories, to connect humans to each other, so that we can make sense of what it is to be alive, so that we can reach out together towards the divine, so that we can make society better. Um, and, and so that we can just get through life better, really. Right. That's and what, so that what is what underpins everything everything you do. And if it's not directly that, it's to support that as the main mission, as it were. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I do stuff for money. Yeah, you know? and that's OK. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, but often I do stuff for money that supports stuff that I do for passion. Yeah. I mean, the obvious example is I interview people for the Mail on Sunday. Yeah. Um, and that's well paid. Uh, politically, I, I sometimes disagree with the paper. Let's put it that m- It'd be pretty hard not to. <clears throat> well, you won't find me commenting on yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> listeners will know that I'm a relatively conservative person, and even I find Too the much Mail on Sunday you. rather hard to stomach. It did vote for, for Remain, I will say that. Oh, part. well, see, even even, the, even those people betray us. <laughs> so, let's not get into that. Those are your comments, James, yes. and I'm passing over that, That's just fine. in no, case the, the anybody list... at the Mail on Sunday is listening. Okay, the listeners so the point already is... know that you're used to my yeah. prejudices. Yeah, yeah. so the, the point is that I write interviews for the magazine. I'm yeah. fairly clear that I write for the magazine, not the rest of it. Yeah. Right? So they're self-contained pieces. And they don't, on the whole, they don't mess with the words. They, yeah. they, you know. um, and they're a privilege to do. They're often very uh, high-profile people. Um, and I do like it, and I enjoy it. But it is, it is for money. Yeah. Right? But also, I mean, the, the connection thing does come into it in the sense that, you know, when I'm in the room with that person, I want to make a connection with them and find out about them as human yeah. beings. And, and the, the conversations are often better when we forget that we're having an interview yeah. and we just connect. And sometimes they're really profound connections that lead to friendship. That has happened. Yeah. Um, so it's all still part of the project. Um, if it was against the project, I wouldn't do it. Okay. Uh, but it's still part of the project and it earns me money. Mm. And then you might say that it, it gives me the space then to do Radio 4 programmes, which yeah. I guess, you know, you would probably call woolly liberal Radio <laughs> 4 programmes, and, and books. Yeah. Um, and l- like The Lightkeeper, which is yeah. the new novel. Absolutely. <coughs> which really is an attempt to connect directly with a reader so that it feels like you don't read it, you inhale it. It's supposed okay. to go down that easily. But then beyond that, one of the one of the not the message, but one of the tones of the book 
is that there is that the divine is present you know bidden or not god bidden god is present the, the, the divine is present in our lives in nature in ourselves right now in this moment mm. that um a god uh, however you want to describe God. For me, that would be through the story of Christ, but however you want to engage with God, God is there, right? right? And the book is written very much from that perspective. I'm right. not trying to convert anybody, but it, that, that is the perspective okay. it's written from. Yeah. And so, um, you say, it sounds like this book has been, you said, 14 years in the writing. Yeah. Is that, as in, is the, the, the original idea for the book, or 14 years ago you said, I'm going to write a novel, what could it be? Well, I always thought, <clears throat> even... Even even back at the age of 16, probably, mm. I always thought there would come a moment when I would write a novel, reveal my genius, and the world would go, oh, we thought he was a journalist, but in fact, he's the world's greatest novelist. Right. <clears throat> that has not yet happened. No, and, and, <laughs> and, it, and it's, um, yeah, so, I, so I, I produced a novel 10 years ago. Mm. Okay. Um, which was called The Song of Heart's Desire. And it was about fertility treatment and IVF, and it was about this couple, Jack and Sarah, who are coming to the uh, their last chance. They've had they've got one more shot, mm. no more money left. Uh, she's a person of faith. They're praying and hoping that this will work, but they're in that horrible two-week waiting period between trying it for the last time and finding out if it will work. Right. And they do the worst thing possible, which is to truck on down to the South Downs and and uh, hire a cottage by the sea and you know, you know they they don't get on right so, so that i wrote that uh, and my agent said I w i'm going to send it out there but i have to warn you that the trouble with books in which nothing happens is that nothing happens right so people won't you know good luck yeah so it went out there nobody wanted it okay so, so uh, but literary but i mean literary fiction books i mean nothing happens in those are they i mean i yeah. I, I bailed i mean you would be appalled at me but Despite the fact that she's a Calvinist, Mary Lee Robinson's books couldn't really, couldn't really get on Even with Gilead? After, after Gilead is the only one I read, and after 100 pages, I asked on Facebook, I'm 100 pages in, does anything actually happen in this book? And the general consensus was, oh, if you're not loving it by now, then... I, I, yeah, then that's probably why. Yeah. But the missing piece of the jigsaw here, James, yeah. is it wasn't very good. Oh, right. <laughs> right. Uh, crucial know. information. Yeah, it was really not very hand, good. Hand on heart, you, you reckon it wasn't. It was terrible. Okay, not just not very good, but actually... Kind of yeah, the that. writing was beautiful, but right. but I was discovering that that's not enough. Right. Okay. Okay. So I was in love with the writing, and the writing was beautiful, but the story was not strong enough. It didn't carry you through. Right. Right. So um, I put it down. Uh, bits that were in. How it. was that? I mean, that. So how long was the book? I'm glad you words? asked me that. Yeah. Was it that? Much? That's brutal, isn't it? Uh, I really, really, really struggled. Really? Yeah. No, I did. Yeah. Because I, I had thought. This is the moment. This is the creative moment. Yeah, and and I and and I knew not only was there indifference to it, I did actually know that it was not very good. Right. Okay. So I thought, well, that's not me. So I thought when I was a kid that I was going to be a rock star and a novelist. Mm. I tried to be a rock star. That didn't work. I tried to be a novelist. That hasn't worked now. Yet. So everything. Yeah. At that mm. point, everything is broken. Yeah. And one of my best friends, Ali. Uh, died that same year. Oh man! Yeah, which this will sound strange. In a way, that helped. Right. Because she was beautiful, and she, in every way, inside and out, and she died of stomach cancer at the age of 40. Right. And she was one of those people of faith who somehow managed to pull off the act, a great create creative act of dying. Right. She didn't want to die, 
but she did it so well. Right. And and it made me grateful to be alive. It made me grateful that I was still breathing and that I was surrounded by people that I loved. It made me thankful for her, and it made me just think, "Oh, get over yourself." Really. Yeah, it's just a book. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so I put it away. Uh, the bits bits of it became "Is God Still an Englishman?" Yeah. Because there were bits of bits of faith yeah. memoir in there. Um, put it away. Yeah. And then. It was sitting there. The characters of Jack and Sarah were at the back of my mind. I live near the landscape that is set on Beachy Head and Beltoot Lighthouse with the 500 foot drop cliffs. Yeah. And I would often go there to walk and get my head together. So I kept wanting to engage with it. Yeah. But I didn't really know where I was going. And then, and this may take you by surprise, enter uh, Lord Geoffrey Archer. Okay. You didn't see that coming, did no, you? No, no, didn't expect to be talking about him. No. No. No, no, so, so obviously, you know, he's problematic, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but... He also sounds quite... I know people who've met him, yeah. who clearly have. Yeah. He's quite hard to like, isn't he? No. Oh, okay, I've met I someone. like him. Oh, fine. I mean, I think as long as you... As long as you... I was going to say, as long as you believe nothing. No, let's not go there. Yeah. As long as you take everything with a pinch of salt. Fine. He's he. I, I think particularly now in his seventies. Uh, okay. There's a there's a kind of uh, yeah. It's not quite redemption, but there is a bit more of a grace about it. Okay. Anyway, the point is, it, you don't have to like him or not like no. him. I, as a writer, I don't I don't think he's the greatest writer in the world, and no. he acknowledges that. But he he counters it with the number two hundred and seventy five million, which is the number of books he sold. Mm. Uh, and one thing he is is a fantastic storyteller. He he does know how to string you along. Yeah. Right. So I went to interview him, and I uh, had some really difficult questions to ask him. And it was quite awkward, but we got through it. And then at the end of it, for what reason, I don't know, generosity or, or whatever it was, he just said, well, what are you doing? What are you up to then? He wanted to know about me, right? I like interviewees who do yeah. that. What are you up to? And I said, well, I, I brought up the story of, the, of Jack and Sarah. I, said, I don't really know where I'm going with this. And, it, and he, for an hour and a half, he sat and interrogated the story. What's the, what's the motivation here? What's driving her? What's driving him? How are they connecting? Why are you doing it that way? Yeah. Um, and it, it just opened the whole thing up for somebody else. I mean, you know, I, I imagine there are people who pay a lot of money for a kind of Jeffrey Archer masterclass yeah. storytelling. Yeah. Opened it up. I went away. I did absolutely none of the things that he suggested. Right. But it unlocked the creative process. Okay. And I suddenly saw what was missing in terms of the plot. Right. I mean, you know, this will not be unfamiliar to you I, and I, I knew it then anyway mm. and, it, and it was simply desire what, what's the driving desire in yeah. the, the, what the do they want mm. yeah. yeah so now in that version of the plot uh, Sarah is in that position where she has to wait but she can't really uh, take it and she runs away to her happy place which is the South Downs um, to face that those two weeks on her own and to and to get away from her partner Jack who uh, we we become uh, the reasons why she wants to get away from him become known over the course of the story okay. and at the beginning of the story he he sees a uh, uh, picture of beachy head on her laptop assumes that the ivf has failed yeah and that she's gone to jump so he tears down to beachy yeah. head to try and find her so right at the beginning you've got her trying to find some inner peace and him trying to find her yeah right suddenly we've got a completely different story Great. yeah and then you've got a spine for, yeah for a 
for an A plot and a B plot or yeah, a subplot. Yeah, exactly. And, a main and, plot the, and then there are there are several others. Yeah. But I mean, putting it simply for brevity, there there is a guy living in an old Georgian lighthouse on the edge of a 400 foot drop, which is a real place, the Beltoot Tower. Yeah. And he has come there to do it up with his partner, who's an artist who's filled it with lovely art. But right at the start of the book, she has died. Right. And he's so consumed with grief, he talks to her and she talks back, or he hears her voice. And he, the point is that his life is suspended between grief and moving on in the same way that the lighthouse is suspended between the sea and the sky. Right. right? So there's your metaphor right there. And, and he wants to leave, but he can't bear to leave and he can hardly bear to stay. So he's stuck in the middle. And um, uh, he will come into contact with Jack and Sarah in a way that would that all three of them will be uh, moved on by, yeah. by the, by the uh, and and the other thing that came out was the, the, the kind of thematic underlie um, really became strong for me mm. uh, and that is to do with the parallel story of Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament okay right so, so in terms of the, the nuts and bolts of writing it you how I mean did you junk the original novel and start all over again. Yeah. Um, how did you go about chipping away at writing? Again, it's a lot of work, isn't it? Mm, With no well, it's 14 years. No guarantee of success because presumably you felt you had to write the whole thing before sending it out, or yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the normal. And, these and days, also, isn't it? and also in the meantime, uh, during those 14 years, I wrote. Uh, well, it depends how you count the time. Either two or three other books. Right. Yes. So, th- uh, so in a way, this became. That there was no expectation of success at all. Yeah. I was doing it because um, it put me in touch with a kind of writing and a kind of aspiration that I had. But it's not, it's not just about the craft. I was also trying to work out the ideas and the feelings that underlie the book as well. Yeah. It's not quite right. Writing is therapy. It's not an autobiographic book. No. I wasn't, it is written from experience, but it isn't, I'm not directly writing about my experience. Um, but there were things about grief and longing and hope and faith and the divine that I, that I needed to work out and it was useful to work them out with characters. Yeah. Um, so it was just, uh, it was a creative act that I needed to do to keep in touch with, yeah. with who I am. And how did you, boring nuts and bolts of yeah. sitting out and typing out the damn thing, uh, were, yeah. you doing, were you setting yourself 500 words a day? Did you go away for three months and right what did you yeah that, that whole 500 words a day thing i i don't buy it i i interviewed philip pullman the other day and he oh, was yeah. talking about he writes three pages of a4 with a fountain pen and that's it so if he if nothing comes he just keeps he sits there until it comes right and if it hasn't come by five o'clock he has a gin and that often helps <laughs> right he said he actually said a massive wine glass of gin right so i think quite a lot of gin okay tends to get him in a position where he can write three pages okay. of a4 even yeah. if they're terrible yeah that's his process that might explain the armed polar bears i'm not quite sure <laughs> don't you not philip absolutely um so uh the that's not that doesn't work for me yeah um for me uh it's a question of following the muse mm. that's a poncy word isn't it yeah that's right i'm not going to go with that word actually but also but you're but you're all but you've already got the discipline of writing to deadlines because you've yes, got I that know professionally yeah. with interviews and stuff yeah but you just don't want to do your novel that way you kind of want to well, be a bit more i'm in the habit of you know on a on a, on a normal writing day a normal work day yeah. i might write two thousand words very very easily yeah right that's not 
That's not daunting to me. Yeah. Uh, 3,000 probably. Yeah. Because back in the day, working for the national newspapers, you know, I, I, it, something would happen on a Saturday afternoon and they say, right, we want 2,000 words on the Paris attacks by six o'clock. Yeah. Right? And so they, I'm not scared of that. That yeah, just yeah. happens. Just, yeah. And that's a muscle that can work. Yeah. And you can use that in a novel sense to go, right, well, I'm going to write the scene where this, that, this okay. and that happens but, and then just write it. Yeah. And, and just write two and a half thousand words on that scene, right? So it's all it's all out there, yeah. And and then you know, and then comes years and years of editing and cutting yeah. and changing and all of that. And one of those writers, since we're talking nuts and bolts, yeah. Um, and one of those writers who sees it more like sculpture. Right. So for any given project, I would rather have like if I've got two thousand words to write, I would rather write four thousand, and then work out what really matters from that four thousand. I'm not one of those who'll get to like 1,500 and think, oh, I've got 450 to go, you know. So I'm all about the bulk. And right. once I've got the material, I'll reduce it and reduce it and mm. reduce it. So this book is only like 250 pages or something. I think it's about 70,000 words. But I would think it is drawn from material that amounts to about 150,000 words. Wow, okay. Yeah. And that's just how you do it? And that's and there's no set way, is there? I mean, there's no... no, no you and, just, you, and you say, you've spoken to Geoffrey Archer and you've spoken to <laughs> Philip Pullman. Philip Pullman. And mean, they do it differently. And they do it differently. Yeah, I mean, and, and I've spoken to many, many other people and they all do it differently. Yeah. The, uh, the one thing is, I don't really believe in writer's block. Right. I think, write something down. If it's crap, then write something better tomorrow. <laughs> right? But yeah. at least you've written something down. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, I mean, the, here we go with all the old truisms. The thing that makes you a writer is that you write things down. That's it. Yeah. That's all. Let's not get mysterious about it. Just do the bloody work. Yeah. Right? And if the work is no good, then do it better. Right? But so it's all about hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on the training ground. Right? Yeah. They, you, it's, you know, I, I ran, oh, I didn't run. I tail walked uh, a 5K this morning. Right. And the person who's tail walking it with me was an ultra marathon runner. Oh my goodness! Yeah, that's what I thought. And yeah. I said, "So how did you how do you do that?" And he said, "Well, I started by doing a two k, and it was excruciating, and then I expanded it over time. And I'm not concerned about the, the how fast I am, but only how far I go. And so over the last ten or fifteen years, I've got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I've put the miles in, and there is a direct correlation mm. with you know." Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of words. Yeah. Writing, 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 writing. Eventually, somehow, there is some stuff in there that is worth using. Mm. And then it's about knowing what, what is and what isn't worth using. And then the final thing, in the nuts and bolts sense, is that if you have a, uh, as, I, as I did, a very serious full-time job, and... Uh, that is preoccupying you. I used to have to get up at 6.30 to commute to London to, to help to edit The Independent on Sunday uh, um, and stayed away from home a couple of nights a week. In, in that situation, where I might not be getting home till half nine, having something to eat, going to bed, getting up again at half six, yeah. in that situation, if the thing that's at the back of your mind about the novel, about the plot, about mm. the thing that you're working away as a kind of antidote to journalism, um, if an idea comes to you at three o'clock in the morning and you suddenly know how to unlock the scene, you, you damn well better get up yeah. and write it. Because if you don't, you're going to lose it. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. No one, uh, you know, I, I'm not interested in the fact that you've got to get up at six o'clock. Yeah. You've still got to get up at three o'clock and then work it out from there. Yeah. 
Uh, it's pretty hardcore, really. It is, isn't it? And that's how 70,000 words gets written, or at least 150,000 words gets written and whittled, whittled down. So I think the background music is eventually going to kill us. Yeah. Um, how can people get hold of your book? <laughs> Through Amazon, obviously, but there are other ways. Yeah, chuck a, st a stick into the wind. and, yeah. and uh, uh, So you can go to www.com thelightkeeper.org the we'll stick that in the show notes yeah, yeah. and you can go uh, obviously Amazon Waterstones mm. Blackwells anywhere you like yeah good that's great Cole Morton thanks very much oh absolute pleasure thank you so that was Cole the, the band begins to play um, and yeah. uh, and it continues but so uh, Dave you, you know you you've you have written the first draft of a novel. I have, yeah. And has it been as painful as, I mean, Cole's novel has taken him 14 years. Yeah, well, mine's taken 38, actually, uh, which I only realised as I was writing it that uh, this was the, that the, 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 there were a few first drafts that I did do uh, when I, and this was when I was first writing for a living. I was a journalist and this is in 1980. And uh, I, I wanted to write this book and I was very influenced uh, by uh, David Nobbs, of course, the great uh, Reggie Perrin writer. Um, and um, Who was a novelist. He, he was a novelist and mm. the, the book that he wrote um, about his childhood and teenage years, um, second from last in the sack race. He was, he was an evacuee. Um, and that's just, uh, it's a great book. Sorry, that's a street cleaner outside now. <laughs> so we've just gone from a noisy uh, festival yeah. uh, to a place in central London, which is almost like a glass box. Yeah. And outside is a... City of Westminster, clean streets and noisy rooms. Yeah. So, yeah, so this, this is a... Um, a Obviously, an autobiographical book, but but very uh, very much fictionalised, mm. uh, and and that book that form had always stayed with me really. And um, over the years, I just got distracted by being a stand-up or writing topical comedy, and I think just always also the the daunting prospect of writing a novel. It just always seemed, I mean, like writing a 5,000-word script hmm. has always felt like, you know, quite a, a, a bit of a sweat, you know, by the time you've gone through your various drafts and whatever. It is, it's, it's, there's a lot of work goes into that. And the idea of writing something 16 times longer than that hmm. uh, just feels, oh, is it going to take me 16 times longer to write this script that I've just spent a month working at? How the hell am I going to remember 14 months down the line what I wrote two months ago. Well, that is a really interesting... That was what I found when I, I did write a novel called Crossword Ends in Violence 5, mm. uh, which was pretty unsuccessful and barely barely even published. But it was it was weird being used to writing scripts that are 5,500 words to suddenly be writing something that's 80,000 words. And you're thinking, if you've got a 5,000-word script, you can sort of remember most of that, yeah. or roughly what happens in each scene and what you wrote and what you rewrote and what you deleted. But actually, I found myself frustrated that I was having to go back and check what I had written, mm. and I couldn't even remember where I'd written it. So sometimes I'd spend 10, 15 minutes trying to find something to find out if I'd mm. already said something before. Yeah. But the, the upside of it is, I guess I found, was that you spend quite a lot of time... Because in a sitcom script or just any kind of screenplay, all you've got really is um, character dialogue and stuff you can see. You don't really have narrators, and yeah. we need to do an episode on narrators. Yeah. Um, but 
it feels like writing a novel is a fantastic shorthand because you basically get to tell the reader stuff, yeah. which is a, <laughs> which is a screenplay writer you don't get to do. Yeah. yeah. So that is quite intoxicating. Mm. Um, but then it can become quite, uh, you can sort of overuse it and suddenly realize that you are telling and not showing, I guess. Yeah, there is a, there, there's definitely an element. And one of the people, uh, who's been reading what I've written has sort of came back with that was, uh, he said, it's a bit too much this happening then that, that happening. And, and I'm aware of that and I can see how I have to kind of disguise that Yeah, with a bit of kind of showy, showy offy or joke or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I think it's, um, it, where I disagreed with uh, Cole actually was on on the word count, uh, and that that's kind of what got me through it. Weirdly, was thinking I really want to get this finished by the end of June, and working out by the end of March, where I've been tootling on, along at five hundred words a day. I thought actually I need to do a thousand words a day, and and actually then doing that was. Uh, felt for me like a great achievement but I think for me the, the the greatest thing about it was I've always wanted to write it and I've been a writer for 38 years in one way or another and finally I get to do the thing and it doesn't matter now if it was any good or it's terrible whatever I, I feel actually yeah I always wanted to do that and now I've done it so that's quite a, a nice a nice the nicest thing about it I would say well that's great yeah. so um I don't know what other lessons we can learn other than you might get uh, help from unexpected people and in unexpected places. And I think that's what the other thing that yeah. the, the discipline of the journalist and of the interviewer and that kind of thing. I thought it's very easy for a writer and a screenplay writer to just uh, d disappear off into writer land. And actually, journalists actually have to go out and find stories and talk to people and talk to people who don't want to be talked to yeah. and mm -hmm. tell stories that don't want to be told and read books mm -hmm. that they don't want to read um, mm -hmm. and look up stories. And uh, so I think it's, it's either natural curiosity or, frankly, a salary saying, go and find this or do that. And yeah. I, want a, I want 900 words by 5 p.m. But either way, whatever... Whatever just gives you more grist for the mill, I suppose, isn't yeah. it? Is it's got to be a good thing. Yeah, I mean they are great. He's got some great journalist stories there as mm. well. Some really nice little tales. Uh, I think he he needs to learn a little bit more about music. I mean, I I, I must admit I felt very uh, sad not to be there when you were discussing about the uh, the Collins in in music. You know, because uh, Colin Bloodstone was actually you know quite a big star, and then they've got Colin Moulding, of course, from XTC, one of the great songwriters of the 20th century right. um there was the guy who was in uh the men at work i think he was colin, colin hay colin hay yeah, yeah. so i know. can't get to sleep was his yeah. other one solo uh, i can't right. get to okay. sleep so yeah. you know and there's the uh, mole historical society he's a colin as well so you know really i think uh, <laughs> from a journalist who is you know he did his research with paul michael glazer but he's not done much research with his rock and roll collins that's oh, well, all i can say i think he's a frustrated <laughs> singer-songwriter himself so well, aren't we all I was, well, <laughs> I, i'm not having said that yeah. i have actually written a musical with James Sherwood about Thomas Beckett, yeah. which is touring at the moment. So yeah. do go and look that up at aturbulentpriest.com. Cole Morton's book, The Lightkeeper, Sometimes Love Takes You to the Edge, it says as the subtitle on the front cover that I've got in front of me here, is available from bookshops all over the place. I'm sure Cole would prefer it if he bought it from an actual bookshop. 
but he he doesn't get to specify sadly um but um but but there we go great just to remind you that we have a script challenge that is that is running yeah and if you look in the show notes or listen to last time's episode then you can find out more information about that but essentially we want to read uh, your script mm. and the prize is is essentially being on a show and we'll critique your script and we'll do all that there aren't any cash prizes or legs up or we'll make it or anything like that we we don't that is not within our gift and if we had that we'd do it with our own shows <laughs> that's true frankly and not that's your true. shows yeah so if you want to know more about the comedy challenge the script challenge then go to comedy.co.uk and click on pro and you can become a pro member that's what you need to do in order to enter the competition and then uh, all, all will be revealed um, but yeah go and listen to last week's episode or Click around and you'll find out more information. You'll find it. Yes. Be like a journalist. Exactly. Sniff dig, it out. Dig deep. Dig and sniff. <laughs> uh, what a what a picture. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you very much. Bye bye. <laughs>